Everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. You know, if a program serving 300 kids and you cut the funding in half, then those kids still need a place to come. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to 52 Conversations. In the early 20th century, settlement houses were established in urban areas across the United States, serving as a refuge from the social ills of the day and providing many services to community residents young and old. One settlement house serving the Syracuse area has been the Dunbar Association. In the first of a two-part conversation, I had the opportunity to talk with the center's newest director about its present and future plans. My name is Carol Dandridge Charles. I serve as the executive director of the Dunbar Association in Syracuse, New York, and I also serve as the executive director of Dance Theater of Syracuse. Thank you, Carol, for being on 52 Conversations with me. First of all, I want to ask you a little bit about your path and in terms of how you became interested in the nonprofit arena and how you, your, your personal journey uh, to become executive director of these organizations. Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> when I was younger, I tempted in the corporate world and I wasn't happy. I I didn't fit in the corporate world. I went to graduate school to study arts management and I got an internship and then I got hired by Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater after completing my master's degree. But when I came to Syracuse University I met my husband and He lured me back to Syracuse. He's from downstate New York City. And uh, he said, Carol, just give me five years, just five years. 30 years later, (laughs) I'm still in Syracuse, and I've been trying to make my way here. So um, when I came to Syracuse, I got a job at Syracuse University doing development. I had worked in the development and marketing departments of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and Dance Theater of Harlem, I learned a great deal. So that transferred to being a development officer at Syracuse University. And then I got a position, now I am a political junkie. I got the opportunity to work for Mir Young in Tom Young's administration, and I was doing public relations there. That was an exciting opportunity. I got to write, uh, you know, press releases, coordinate press conferences. Um, Sometimes I'd write some of his, not speeches per se, but talking points that, you know, I'd do research for that. And that was an exciting position, and I served for four years. And then I started my family. I have three beautiful children, and one is about to graduate from graduate school. Uh, One is about to graduate from undergraduate school, and I have a 13-year-old in seventh grade. So that's how I kind of began this development, nonprofit path. I stayed home for a while with my children, and then the opportunity opened up for me 
to work at the Community Folk Arts Center, where I worked for about 10 years. It was like just short of 10 years. And I do believe that if there was a position that I kind of self-actualized in, it was as the managing director of the Community Folk Arts Center. It was part of Syracuse University. I love higher education. I loved working with the art, uh, meeting the artists. I could do uh, many different things in that role and capacity. And uh, that was a very exciting time. And uh, from there, I went to Syracuse Stage. Was, uh, <laughs> did you, you didn't ask me for my whole resume, but served as the community engagement manager for Syracuse Stage for almost four years. Then I used my development skills and uh, served in the capacity of the development director of Vera House for four years. And that was really my first entree into nonprofit human service work. Um, but I learned a lot and met some fabulous people just committed to the cause of ending domestic violence in our community. But then I began to yearn again for, when I, when I began to think about how many years I have left to, to work and what I want to be doing with my time, uh, the opportunity came for me to be a part of Dunbar. And um, I really felt connected to the history of Dunbar. I didn't grow up in Syracuse, New York, but I do believe that holding on to the important anchors in our community, it's, you know, Dunbar is a treasure. It has been around for 100 years this year. It was birthed from an idea from a man who wanted to keep young people off the street. So he wanted to create a recreational program for young people. And some people got a, a hold of the idea and helped him find a space. And a and hundred years later, we're still doing the work of Jimmy Legrin. Our mission today, our core mission, is to break the cycle of generational poverty to um, promote racial equity, and we're focused on the development of children. We have a program with children and seniors, and um, that's something to be excited about and committed to. It flourished at a time of the settlement house movement when the migration from the south to the north um, in the early 20th century and it became a place where people could find work, where there was daycare, where there was after-school programs, where there was socialization, recreation, and culture. And that's why people fell in love with Dunbar. And I want to see that live again. One of the things that I noticed when you was, you know, kind of, reading off your resume. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is that you held a variety of positions that would um, basically prepare you in mm -hmm. such a way that would have a natural 
leading towards the executive director position of any organization. So I, I think that's definitely for, for you to be commended on and just a variety of roles, particularly development, because we know that the executive director uh, oftentimes is looked to uh, to be able to bring money into the organization, whatever the uh, mission of the organization is. So that's definitely a prime role for, for the ED. But the other thing that, that I thought about as we as you was describing Dunbar, Dunbar is actually uh, a privately owned organization, privately owned institution. Yeah. And you've been in this community, I've been in this community, and we have seen Dunbar literally come out of the ashes. <laughs> Let me ask you, why do you feel that it is so important for the African-American community uh, to have its own institution and how that has actualized itself here in Syracuse for Dunbar? Oh, wow. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I'm encouraging, I've just started this, in speaking to my staff, it's the why. Why are you interested in working here? Why, you know, asking donors, why do you give? Asking seniors, why do you come? And one of, um, one of the people that holds up that I can look to about this why is why it's important is um, Manny Breland. Grew up in Syracuse. He said that um, you know came from a poor family, but he didn't know he was poor. He probably could have gotten in trouble, but he had Dunbar, and he could come here and he could play basketball and he could. You know, all his friends were here. He was in the drum and bugle corps. There were just there were dances here. This was a home away from home for so many people, and he was mentored here. There were people here that took him under their wing, and because he played basketball here and he learned that he was good at it, he was able to get a scholarship to Syracuse University, which enabled him to you know, teach, which enabled him, because of, you know, he was, um, I do believe he helped lead um, Syracuse University's basketball team to their first NCAA tournament. He's credited with that. And on and on. All those firsts started with Dunbar for him which is why now that he is of a certain age and serving on the board, because this institution gave him the capacity to live a wonderful life. And there are stories all around like that. Liz Page, one of our board members as well, went to preschool at Dunbar. I mean, people talk about how their mothers work here. I mean, there's a connection. They, the source of their first job, our deputy mayor, um, said her first job, Sharon Owens, right out of college, was here at Dunbar. There's so many people who owe part of their trajectory in life to Dunbar. And I think that's why it's so important. I think that's why it's still here. You know, we're supported locally. You know, people donate 
to Dunbar. I think at one time there were memberships to Dunbar because it is uh, a local community organization. And you, you led in by talking about my skills preparing me. I mean, I, you know, I pray that I can live up to the mission of the institution. And, but I did feel, sitting on the outside in, that if I could bring my strengths to bear on the problems this institution has had, I may be able to help it move toward sustainability and thriving. So with that being said, what are the things that need to happen for Dunbar to move, first of all, to sustainability, and then, of course, to to become a thriving institution like it was previously? Uh, It's interesting that you say that. I mean, there, there are a number of paths. I, and I think this is not only Dunbar's issue. I think many nonprofits are thinking about how they are going to sustain if it's not just grant funding that's sustaining them. Um, because when those grants go away, positions go away. When um, there are a number of organizations, you know, talk about the hows. There are organizations like our local arts institutions that are connected to the university or they're connected to the county, like CNY Arts. I mean, some of the Syracuse stage does not pay rent. They're housed. It's a Lort professional theater that is uh, housed in a Syracuse University building. They do run a Syracuse University program but they don't pay rent. So that's an overhead piece that they don't have to deal with. Um, For years, the Syracuse Symphony did reside in the Civic Center, free of charge. I mean, those kind of supports where they exist, this either public-private partnerships or that kind of, relationship. The other community centers in town survive because they are funded by the city, a bigger entity. So they don't have to worry about, you know, there's certain basic things that are going to be covered. The building, the maintenance of the building, and probably your executives are going to be covered because you're owned by the city. There's a nonprofit that runs it, Right, but CDBG is covering major expenses for that institution. So those are are ways some nonprofits survive, other than relying on the cycle of grant writing. And also, you know, people have to begin to support the institutions that they believe in with their dollars. If you want it to survive. You have to support it. And I will be asking. You know, no money, no mission. We cannot survive without financial resources, period. So, you know, some people have been very fortunate and they have uh, foundations and they give. But 
many organizations have criteria to what they give to. And um, when the originating mission of Dunbar spoke to creating an organization for the Negro people, we have steered away, and, and when people think of Dunbar, they think, uh, we serve everyone. But when people think of Dunbar, they think of Dunbar as a black institution. There are some people that will not fund an organization that targets a specific population. So people that care about the people we serve should give so we can do the work that we were founded to do. And, and does a part of that strategy include engaging um, individuals who have previously benefited? And, and as we probably know, some of those individuals are probably fast leaving yes. off the you know off the scene. So yes. can we target them? Is, is there kind well, of a race against the clock? Uh, and actually, it's interesting because um, Mr. Breland, who is very, very generous, I spoke about him earlier, I'm working on a letter uh, with his help to reach out to the people that he came up with that are still with us and have done well. And he wants to reach out to them and say, you know, will you consider supporting Dunbar into the future because of what Dunbar has done for you? And so that is, um, that is a strategy. I would love to see Dunbar create an endowment, a fund for the future. We're still at the point where we have to worry about a fund for next year. <laughs> but I think it important, especially as we are going through this 100th, our centennial year, our 100th anniversary year, that we begin to think differently about how we sustain ourselves. And an endowment potentially is a way to do that, you know, what we do in 2018, in 2058, is going to look a whole lot different, right? So if we start with 25 cents <laughs> today, what would that be in, you know, $2060? Certainly, certainly. And these are great things to, to, to be mindful of in terms of as you're building and bringing the organization to sustainability, to, to a thriving institution. Those are all definitely important pieces of the puzzle. So it sounds like you have a short-term and then long-term mm -hmm. outlook. I, I really think we have to look at that. I mean, I, I again, I shared with you that I worked for Vera House. I worked very closely with their foundation trustees. They have two boards at Vera House. They have the working board and they had the trustee board. And the trustee board specifically raised money for the foundation. And the Vera House Foundation, I saw the originating documents from the day they were founded. They had zero dollars in the bank. And now they have close to four million dollars in their portfolio. So that's over a 25-year period. That's doable. It's doable. And, you know, there was a whole campaign around, you know, raising money to get to $5 million because that could generate 
enough money to cover all the staff, regardless of whether you had a grant to come in or not. And um, we have to start thinking that way. You know, I've heard it said that, and you may have heard this as well, in terms of the settlement model Mm -hmm. maybe dying out or having having reached a point of close. What's your thoughts on that? Has it? Well, it's interesting. I just spent last week, as a matter of fact, I was in Albany with 60 other settlement house representatives from across the state. It seems like, I shouldn't say this, but one of the things we were fighting for or advocating for was to make sure that the funds designated for statewide settlement houses gets put back into the budget. It was zeroed out. I understand this has happened before, but if you don't go advocate for it, it will stay zeroed out. So we talked about the importance of the work across the state that area settlement houses do. And right here in Syracuse, we're 100, uh, Huntington is 99. I'm not sure how old the Syracuse Northeast Community Center is, but they were a settlement house. Uh, La Liga is considered a settlement house. And if you think about the work all of these institutions do in the community, it's sorely needed. I mean... We were just blessed here at Dunbar. For many years, we had a food pantry. And we served food. And people still come here on a weekly basis to ask for food. If we have it, we share, because some people still give us food to give away, but we're not, we have not been connected to the food bank for the last two or three years. But some of our children come here hungry, And we've been coming out of our pockets to ensure, like, local fraternities and sororities give food. Lambda Kappa Mu was here Monday to make sure we had food for the kids that are here all week on break. That kind of thing was happening to make sure that we could feed the kids. But we just got reconnected to the food bank through their kids' cafe. So now we'll be able to offer the children that come here that need it a meal when they come here after school. And unfortunately, it might be the only meal that they get outside of school in some of the cases, right? Yes. So I'm thankful for that. This kind of work goes on in settlement houses across the state, feeding people. Some of them house people. There's something called um, NORCs, which is naturally occurring... Yes, for the elderly. Mm -hmm. You know, young people are moving away. The people that are left in the area becomes like a senior village. And the community centers, the settlement houses, are making sure that the resources that are needed by these residents of the Norks are supplied. I mean, those are some of the things we were advocating for. But as I, you know, as a new executive director was hearing some of the stories, I was like, this is important work. So for, for Dunbar specifically, what will it take for you to at least feel that 
the organization is not in danger of folding again or going away again, where will you reach that turning point or that critical mass point where you feel that the organization is at least viable enough to be able to continue to go forward? I think there, well, the blessing is Dunbar owns its facility. That's a tremendous blessing. A lot of organizations cannot say that. I think there needs to be a level of base support. I'm not sure where it comes from. Wouldn't it be nice if that's generated from an endowment that covers the salary of two or three main executives or two or three main positions? You need the leader of the organization. I think you need a financial person and you need someone to support those two people. At minimum, those three positions and then maybe grants can cover that. So... um, That's the minimum. But it's interesting that you bring that up because I shared with you that I'm going back to school. And my research started, it became about 100-year-old organizations and African-American institutions and how they were sustaining themselves. So I was doing this research, you know, you wouldn't think there aren't that many institutions that are over 100 years old. In Syracuse, there are only three, and two of them are churches, Bethany and Peoples, and now Dunbar. Across the country, you have HBCUs, you have some civil rights organizations and churches that have the longevity of being 100. Some of these organizations, fraternities and sororities, I say that to say some of them are membership-based. The members of churches, the members of fraternities and sororities, the members of the NAACP sustain those institutions, right? Churches, unless they form a 501c3, usually don't um, write grants. But they know every Sunday they're going to garner some income and maybe they'll make a special request of their members. Some of these churches are forming corporate um, entities. So if you see, like I've noticed Peoples, I think, started something where, because they've purchased all the buildings across the street from them, right? And Mm -hmm. they're starting uh, my church back home, Allen AME Church, I think became a corporate entity. And they started owning stores and... They started doing things for the community. So, it was, you know, they expanded their mission. You know, the, the, there was the church, but then they expanded their mission to include the redevelopment and revitalization of the neighborhood. Some of them form credit unions. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting money in the bank, the parishioners or their members put their money in that entity. So that money gets invested and supports itself. So people are beginning to think out of the box about how to sustain themselves. But those entities that have, and all of them that over 100, have done something like that. Interesting. You know, one of the things that you mentioned, and I'm curious as to, in the conversations that you have with the other settlement houses 
as you all uh, collectively went and approached the, the uh, elected officials in Albany, I'm mm-hmm. supposing. Um, sometimes it's not so much about the case that you can make for, but the case that you make against, against in terms of what happens when these programs, when these interventions aren't around and aren't available. Or did you find approaches such as that or like those that's being taken by your counterparts in other locations? I think that was part of that, was part of that in the conversation, especially around NORCs and and I think something happened last year where money was taken out and it was not put back. And what actually was happening, like people being displaced from their homes as a result of that funding being taken away. And, you know, one woman from downstate spoke about, you know, this aging woman who is, you know, was part of the Holocaust and she is living in the home that she's lived in for like the past 65 years and you know what would happen to that person being uprooted at this time in their life after you know again suffering an assault on their person after being settled for all these years like the impact of these decisions on people's real lives. I mean, those are the types of conversations that were being had. And, you know, where do people go if there are no after-school programs? And, you know, if, you know, if a program serving 300 kids and you cut the funding in half, then those kids still need a place to come. Do we just allow now only 150 kids to come? And then if that happens, where do those other 150 kids go? Sure. We have to really begin to, um, to think those thoughts. So yes, people are making those arguments, but we're at a crossroads now. And like I said earlier, people are going to have to advocate for and invest in things that they care about if they want them to stick around. Stay tuned for the second part of my conversation with Carol Charles, where we'll discuss another organization that's near and dear to her heart. 52 Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.